And also of note is George Carlin was super hot as Pam Greer. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome as we travel back to 1991 uh, again. I am Josh Hadley. With me is not Peter because his microphone broke. And with me is not Cecil because he's at a family function this week. So Fred is here to talk 1991 with me. Who's not fully sane. Would that make mm. you unsane? <gasps> or would, would that make you tenebrae? I, I was going to say, I'll, I'll, I'll do a goblin theme right now, but I can't think of one right off the top of my head. But that's 1982. We're going to be talking about the genre films of 1991. But before mm. that, you guys need to go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Last week, we talked about the more mainstream films, the dramas, the comedies, the big-budget films and whatnot of 1991, and we basically glossed over the genre films. So that's what we're going to look at this week. And strangely enough, I, I don't know if we noticed it at the time, but this was the year of two. Now, I'm not even counting sequels that are like Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Omen 4, things like that, but just the right. twos. We've got Necromantic 2, Puppet Master 2, Sorority Babes in the Dance in the Dance-a-thon of Death, that's a sequel to Slimeball Bolorama, Waxwork 2, Trancers 2, Alligator 2, 976 Evil 2, Terminator 2, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Beastmaster 2, Scanners 2, Mannequin on the Move. What was in the water in 1991 that this was the year of two? I guess this also would count for some of those other ones that weren't just twos. I guess what people have to put in their brain pan for this time is that when the video market hit, it wasn't necessarily this big thing. It it was it was a slow build process because as we've already discussed many times, you know, studios weren't on board with it right away. Uh, A lot of people forget that video stores, when it started to get popular, many stores would open and be closed within the end of a year or two. The market was growing. It was still in the 80s, this kind of transitional thing. By the end of the 80s, that's when it, I think you'll agree, the foot, the foothold was there. Video was here to stay. The studios had accepted it. A transition was occurring in theaters. People started to not go to movies quite as much. I mean, it wasn't like today where there's really way fewer people going to the movie theaters now. But back then, it was declining. Movies were changing. They were going for big spectacle as opposed to quirkier, smaller films. A lot of little studios closed up shop. So now was the time to start banking on safer projects. And that's why I believe you start to see a rise of these direct-to-video twos. Well, it's not just that. I mean, you've got no, no. Highlander 2, big theatrical movie, Mannequin on the Move, big theatrical movie, TMNT theatrical, Terminator 2 theatrical. But they weren't scared of the theater numbers like they were in years prior. I was just shocked at how many twos. And like I said, that's not even going into Omen 4, Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, Puppet Master 3, and all this. You've got a lot of later sequels, too. So let's deal with the twos right off the bat. You got Necromantic 2, which I wasn't a fan of the first film. I don't even think (laughs) I ever saw Necromantic 2. I didn't see it for years, so I didn't know. At that time, I didn't even know it existed. Well, and then you got Puppet Master 2, which Mm -hmm. I've never been, I've never been a big fan of the Puppet Master franchise but I will admit two and three are probably the best films in the franchise. Well, three is my personal favorite, and with apologies to Cecil, who I've teased, I don't like two at all. But this is when Full Moon was now joined with Paramount, so they had a lot more uh, money to play with. Yeah, Sorority Babes and the Dance-a-thon of Death from Todd Sheets, my old boss over at Jackalope. Okay, I like Bolarama. I'm not going to lie, I really, really don't like Dance-a-thon of Death at all. I literally saw five minutes of it, and I 
was like, nope. Well, then what about Waxwork 2? I <laughs> genuinely liked Waxworks. I think there was a lot of imagination, a lot of great ideas. Waxwork 2, you just go, what the f***? Yeah, I I have the Blu-ray set, as you know, and I rewatched them both. And even rewatching Waxwork, I was kind of shocked at how slapped together the first part of the movie felt. The commentary even confirms this. He he actually said, "Yeah, this is I I didn't have a clear vision. My vision was for the Waxworks, not for what led up to it. But once you get the Waxworks, oh man, does it become fun." Part two, however, is all over the place. It's a mess. There are some imaginative moments. There are some really fun scenes. Once again, I think it comes alive, but not this time until the last third. It's kind of a hard movie to sit through. It's still fun, but it's not good, if that makes sense. Strangely how I feel about Trancers 2. I love Trancers. I think Trancers 3 is the best of all the sequels. Trancers 2 is good, but I don't know. It didn't live up to the first film for me, and then the third film still surpassed it. So that puts Trancers 2 in a weird spot for me. I've always said that Two and three are interesting because two has lots of great humor. I mean, it's a very funny movie, but the story is just not there. But it's got humor, it's got heart, but it's got no story. Part three has a really good story, and as well, I should add, a good visual look to it because two looks terrible. It looks really cheap. Three goes back to that noir look and feel. It's got a really good story, a solid villain, but it lacks the humor and heart. And I always thought that was kind of interesting. Well, what about something that just doesn't need to exist, like Alligator 2, The Mutation? Now, I love Louis Teague's Alligator. I Same. think that, I, I think that's a fantastically funny, self-aware, without needling you in the eyeball, look, 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 we're making jokes and satire kind of movie, which would, you know, go to John Sayles' great script. But then at the same time, Mutation... Just, it felt like exactly what it was. A cheap cash-in on a movie everyone forgot about from ten years ago. And funny enough, I, I mean, I barely remember it. And that does say a lot because Alligator is one of my favorite B-movies. It got me into John Sayles as a writer and how he would write these B-movies and then take all the money to make his independent films, which I was a big fan of. Plus, you got Robert Forster. Come on. When doesn't he make a project better? Alligator is one of those films people should see if they haven't, but two is one you should avoid. On the other hand... I never liked 976 Evil. I get why it's there. I get why it has fans. I just never got into that one. On the other hand, I really like 976 Evil 2 a lot. I think Wynorski really did something with this movie because, I mean, it only has a tenuous connection to the first film. I mean, yes, it's got one of the same actors playing the same character, but really this one is is more of a Videodrome-y sort of thing. I'm not comparing it to Videodrome, but Preacher is advertising the 900 number on TV and stuff like that, and then people are, like, digitizing into the evil. I really like 976 Evil 2. I think it's easily the better film, and yet it had half the budget, it had a no-name cast, and Wynorski has basically admitted he was just a gun for hire. How does that make a better film? But it does! Well, sadly, I didn't see it. That mainly is because the first one underwhelmed me quite a bit. Looking back at part one, it it does have a lot of imagination and creativity. You can see what he was going for. It just lacks that certain something. There's that missing piece to tie all of this together. And uh, I didn't see two, so I just can't comment on it. I apologize. Fair enough. I mean, we talked a lot last week about Terminator 2. I'll just mm. leave it as I consider... I consider Terminator the better film, but Terminator 2 is my favorite Terminator movie, if that makes any sense. I think Terminator 2, especially in the director's cut, is probably one of the best action movies ever made. I know that's well, a bold statement, but that's uh, that's where I, that's the hill I'm going to die on. Oh, that's fine. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, because once you start arguing what's someone's favorite action, that, that's a little more difficult to, I think, quantify. For It's whatever you like, and I would never dispute Part 2 is a great action movie. It really is, because it's sort of like when people call Die Hard an action movie, or Escape from New York, and then you go back and rewatch both those, and you're like, wow, there really isn't a ton of action in these. They're more thrillers. 
Terminator 2 is an action movie, and it's just ludicrously entertaining, which is probably why it's your favorite in regards. I am that guy that prefers Terminator 1. I love a tight movie that has little fat on it. You know what I mean? Just gets right to the point, pulls you in, holds you there to the very end. I just think Terminator 1 is just perfect in that regards. But I'll if Terminator 2 is on, I'll watch it every time. But the, the only caveat I'll give is director's cut. Direct, I, I, all of yes. those scenes, all of yes. those scenes that were cut are essential to making the film work. I understand why they were cut theatrically, because the movie was just, at that point, you didn't release a two and a half to two hour and 40 minute movie theatrically, like not an action film. They're essential to making the movie work. Well, they're essential to giving it a heart. Uh, when I saw it in the theater, I, I was cold. My friends loved it, and I walked out and I went, wow, there's, there was no heart to that hardly. And they're like, oh, you're just being hurt again. But then I saw the director's cut, fell madly in love with it. So I agree completely. It, it's weird. Terminator 2 and The Abyss are both that way. I, I, I literally didn't even like The Abyss at all. And then no, I, saw, I watched the director's cut and went, I love this. This is a, a totally movie. different film. 28 minutes makes a lot of difference. Oh, completely. It's The whole point was cut out of the movie. I didn't like 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the live action, so Secret of the Ooze doesn't do a thing for me. I like the first one a lot. The second one, it's not awful, but here's the funny thing. I don't think I've ever set out to rewatch it. I've rewatched the original. I've never set out to rewatch the sequel, so there you go. I guarantee if Cecil were here, he'd be singing Go Ninja Go. You know my problem with that is, that's fine, but anytime people bring up part two, that's all they do, is the Go Ninja Go, and I think that's actually the most damning thing about the movie, you could say, when the vanilla ice wrap is the most memorable thing you walk away from with it, eh, you got a problem. Well, and then you got Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which... I think is a fine movie. It is a fine movie. It's, it's a fine not sequel. as good as the first one, but another caveat, William Sadler fucking steals this movie from the boys. Agreed. Bill and Ted is actually a very special movie to me, the first one. I, I really love it. I think it shows you could take something as silly as, you know, two basic stoner dudes, and let's be honest, that's what they were. They just cut the drug references out. Two basic stoner dudes and give it a lot of heart and humanity by just telling a tale about how two people that no one even considers they, you know, you're going to fail, you're never going to be anything, you're never going to amount to anything, and it turns out they change the world. What a great idea for a movie. It's fun, a lot of heart. The second just sort of misses that mark because that's a really high watermark to set. <laughs> I don't think the second film could have ever passed it. Taking it on its own steam, it's a wonderful film. I really like It's a film that grows on you over the years, too, I've noticed. And William Sandler just steals Every scene. That's something people say for a lot of movies. He really does steal every scene he's in. And also of note is George Carlin was super hot as Pam Greer. <laughs> hey, little, if you've seen the movie, that became... if you've seen the movie, that statement actually kind of makes sense. If you, yeah, if you know the film, yes. I did hate the weird boots everybody wore in the future, though. I just want to say that I really hated the look of the future uh, outfits, though. It was future boots. They were Uggs. They were like like nasty, ugly Uggs. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Highlander 2. We talked in detail in our Highlander retrospective, but mm. e yeah, that that's not a good film. There's one thing I'll always say about it. I love the scenes with Lambert and Connery together. It makes so much sense when you realize they became really close friends in real life, and that Connery only came back because of Lambert. It shows. It's some of the best scenes in the movie, and you can turn it off after Connery's gone. What about Beastmaster 2, Through the Portal of Time? Is <laughs> can this I one... just... I'm, that's a guilty pleasure. I like it. Really? I'm probably going to get paid for that, but... I love Beastmaster. Beastmaster 2, it blew ass. It's got a great cast. It just blew ass. It does, and I'll tell you, and here's something, when I first saw it, the disappointment I can't register on a meter. I was so, you know, you look at that first film, and it's like, that that's Conan the Barbarian in a lesser sense. It's fantasy and weird creatures, and then the second one, they, you know, travel through time to L.A., like... How lame. But I have to admit the film has grown on me over time, and I get a big kick out of Wings Hauser and Sarah Douglas. I, I really don't care about the Beastmaster at all, which you should. 
but I do get a big bang out of Wings Hauser. So you can call me wrong if you want on that one, but I do kind of get a kick out of it. But it also doesn't technically make sense. They're traveling into the future of our Los Angeles, which means Beastmaster was our past. I don't yeah. remember all of these monsters and magic and witches and shit in the past. Or, well, did, they, did history class lie to me? I think it did. I really do. But then again, you got to do that with Conan and everything else, too. So it's like I said, if you're taking that one seriously, good grief. But it's a bad movie. There's no disputing it. And a weird choice for a sequel, too. The other two is Scanners 2, The New Order, which talked about a lot in our Scanners retrospective. Yeah, we've covered that. It's a it's a dumb movie. I don't know. It has a certain style style to it. It's just dumb as a stump. Yeah, it, it lacks the edge of the original. It's okay. It's not a bad watch. If you're interested, I'd say go ahead and watch it. Just don't expect much. But here's something Josh and I will both agree on. I would just say skip it and go right over to Scanner Cop. A lot more fun. Scanners 3 is kind of fun, too. And again, in a stupid oh, way. Now, now we are at odds. <laughs> hey, it's not Scanner Cop 2 for fuck's sake. No, no, I'll give you that. Scanners 3 is way better than Scanner Cop 2. That what a what a waste on that one. Well, now that we're out of the twos, let's see what else we got here for genre. Remember okay. Body Parts with Jeff Fahey, which is basically that old Twilight Zone episode just done as a gore movie? Yeah, yeah, done by Eric Red. I saw that movie in the theater. There was an Amazing Stories episode that had the same premise. There was a Twilight Zone episode of the same premise. We've seen a dozen independent movies of the same premise of somebody, something happens, they get a body part or something. Even even John Carpenter's Body Bags did this with the eye. And it's from somebody who's evil and it starts to take over their body. And it's like, oh, God, we really needed this again? Yeah, Oliver Stone's The Hand. Well, I, I, yeah. I'm thinking directly to Mark Hamill in The Eye from Body Bags. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what to say about it. Like, Eric Red has a style, and you can see it in that movie, but it, it has no edge to it. There's just nothing in it except, well, Jeff Fahey's cool. I always like Jeff Fahey. He's always cool to watch. The movie, it, it just sort of lays there. It's not like, say, The Hitcher which has that kind of ethereal, metaphysical sort of feel to it. It's just, it, I don't know how else to describe it. It's the, it's the swing and a miss there. That's the best I can say. It's, it's a good attempt. It's not like it's awful. It just sort of lays there. It's not a movie you set out to watch. Which is kind of the way I feel about Cape Fear. The, the remake, the Scorsese one. Now, I've never really liked the original. The remake just never did anything for me. I never, I mean, I don't remember how the original was in this aspect, but De Niro is a fucking cartoon villain in this. I mean, Scorsese's trying to play this movie like a serious thriller, and De Niro's a villain from a cartoon. That's one of the reasons I don't like it. I took a lot of heat when that movie came out. See, I like the original. The only problem I have with the original is the daughter drives me utterly crazy. You know, she's like 14 going around, Daddy, Daddy! You know, it's like, oh, good grief. But Ro uh, Robert Mitchum is pure menace in the original. And seriously, if you've seen the remake, go check out the original and just watch Mitchum. He's amazing in it. And there's a scene where in, in the remake, you start off with De Niro, you know, remember he's in the jail cell and pulling himself up. He's got tats all over. You know, I forget what they say, but they're obviously, oh, you see he's an evil guy. In the original movie, there's just a shot. You watch Mitchum as the credits are rolling, walking through this town and he walks into the courthouse and he just passes a woman and she drops some books and looks up and he just walks right on by her. And that little nuance lets you know there's something wrong with this guy before the movie's even started. Talk about a compare and contrast and the original wins hands down. Remember, this is the era where Fangoria was making their own movies. You know, the whole Fangoria films. We had Mind Warp the year earlier. Mm -hmm. well, the, sec the second one was this year. Remember the shockingly good vampire film, Children of Build the Night by Tony yeah. Randell? I, I want to be fair on this because I don't know if I'm going to really call it a good movie. It looks great. It's, okay, it, I'll say it looks fantastic. Okay. Yes, uh, that's what I was going to get to. For the money, like these movies were super low budget, and he really does a great job visually with the little amount of money he has. So visually, this is a great film to look at if you want to be a low budget filmmaker and how to maximize every dollar. That's the movie to check out. But like I said, I, I, I can't really call it a good movie. 
I don't like the Child's Play movies to begin with. Child's Play 3 is just a weak, weak <laughs> movie. I didn't like the first film. I thought the second film was just bad. It the is. The third one is all, I mean, we haven't got into the, the self-parody that it, once it becomes the Chucky series that it will become. Cause three is still played totally straight. Man, nothing works in this movie for me. I literally just saw it again last Halloween. It was like on cable or something like that. And I was just like, okay, thank you for reminding why, reminding me why I don't need to revisit these. I would say Child's Plays in that great example uh i've brought up a million times about just an idea it, it should have stopped with one i actually rather enjoy the first movie it's not a favorite of all time but i enjoy it uh, it's a it's a it's a fun little movie it takes its premise to its farthest point for the most part that's it it should have been over it should have ended two is just the same thing recycled two is actually a good looking movie that's all i'll give it three is to me where the gas ran out of the tank it's not awful it's competent. It's just not interesting. I didn't care. I didn't care at any point. Which is the exact same thing you can say about Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Ugh. This is... Now, I think 5 was them kind of opening the door to this and doing it to a degree. This is full self-parody at this point. This is full self-parody for Freddy. I, I can't even put into words in such a short period of time how much I hate Freddy's Dead. I could probably find something good to say about almost all the other Freddy movies except this one. I just can't find any redeeming qualities. It's not entertaining. It's not fun. It's the flattest group of characters we've had in the entire series up to that point. Kids are uninteresting. The story's uninteresting. You can tell Robert England is kind of getting tired of this. It's, it's just evident. I mean, when you have to start doing Warner Brother Looney Tune jokes and Power Glove, the end of the line, it was desperation on every level. Which, I don't know if I'd say the same thing for Howling 6, The Freaks. Now, I recently <laughs> rewatched these because my girlfriend had never seen any of the Howling movies, so we, we watched all of them. She still hasn't seen seven yet because, well, I'm trying to shield her from that. We, we, we've, we've watched up through The Freaks, and we did a whole retrospective on these previously. The Freaks looks fine. The idea of adding a vampire into the mix on paper works. Nothing in this movie works, though. I am convinced now Bruce Payne doesn't know how to actually act except at, like, 11. up to 12. Yeah, because oh, sure. I don't think I've ever seen Bruce Payne in something where he is not brutally over the top, Fred! Yeah, Bruce Payne can be a lot of fun, especially in the right project. But uh, there's not much I can say about this one because, uh, for me, it really does end at Howling 1, begins and ends. And many of the sequels almost feel like they're all just standalone projects, standalone directors. You know, they don't have much in common. It's an okay film. I mean, for a part six, it ain't bad. It's more watchable than a couple of the other ones, especially seven. What about Omen 4, The Awakening, where at this point, Fox was making this as a TV movie? This wasn't even theatrical. I don't remember much about the other three, other than I remember Sam Neill being really good in three. I remember watching four in 1991 when it premiered and just going, is there anything else on? That's that's one of those premises, like, I, I was about to say Omen on TV doesn't strike me as a good idea, but, you know, you could, if you did what Part 3 did, this, like, say you wanted to do a series, right? You could have a story about a man is the Antichrist, you know it's Damien, and you could watch his political rise. Now, keep in mind, we have a lot of that on TV today, so I'm not talking now. That's, you know, we, we get plenty of that. But I'm saying back then, you could follow Damien as an adult getting into politics, his rise to power, how he's going to control the world and deceive them and turn them from God. That could be an interesting series. What they were doing was, I think, like the worst choice of everything. And it was boring. So boring. I've never sat through the uncut people under the stairs. I've only ever seen this movie on Monster Vision, so maybe that is influencing what I'm about to say. I just don't think it's a well-made movie. People under the stairs, Wes Craven, I just don't think it's a well-made movie, but then again, I've only ever seen it on Monster Vision, so I saw it cut for TV. Yeah, I saw it in the theater, and I can honestly say, uh, what was first? Was it this film or Shocker? Came first. Sh Shocker came first. That was 89. Okay. Then Shocker was the beginning of my disillusionment with Wes Craven, and this was the, the confirmment. 
confirming of it. He's an idea man, and he's a really good idea man. But there are times I wonder if his ideas and script shouldn't have been turned over to other people, what we might have gotten. It's not an awful movie, but here's the thing. I have never set out to watch it again. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm using the term set out, but I, I, I like that term that says, like, what do you want to watch? What do you get drawn back into? Second viewings of movies, for me, kind of define, is this movie going to have legs? For one viewing, it's okay, but I agree with you. It's not well made. It's a film that I'd almost say is too weird for its own good. It's got that look at me quality about it. That's it. That's all I can say. It's okay. Well, and then I remember being super excited. I, I'm sure you remember the era where, you know, this is early full moon. Every time full moon puts something out, I don't know about you, but I would go rent it almost sight unseen. But oh yeah. Lance Henriksen and Jeffrey Combs in a full moon pit in the pendulum. Mm -hmm. And then I went, how did this suck? Because it did. It's got some really intense performances. And if you watch it for like, if you're a Lance Henriksen freak, see it. He's great as Tokamata. Combs is barely in it, so it's. I don't even think he's really worth mentioning too much. He's good, though. It's got an intensity. There are moments that are good. But, yeah, this, unfortunately, is not the movie you you want. Like, you watch the old Vincent Price, Pit in the Pendulum. It's surprisingly entertaining film for how weird it is. You watch this one, it's not weird enough. I know, I just got done picking on people under the stairs for being too weird. There just wasn't enough here. It almost felt like band wanted to play serious. Like, oh, Which doesn't do work for Full Moon, man. No, it doesn't. Especially when you got Stuart Gordon at the helm. You really want it to be a little zanier. There's one moment involving they're going to burn a witch. Do you remember that? And she eats gunpowder. I actually murder. do remember that now. Because I haven't seen this since 1991 when Th I read it. That's the best moment in the whole movie. She's like really defiant. So she eats a bunch of gunpowder and as they're burning, she's laughing. Ah! Boom! And it scares the crap out of all of them. As she splatters all over them. It needed more of that insanity. Well, what about the insanity of popcorn? really predates Scream by about four years in that self-aware slasher movie tropes thing. Scream gets all this credit. Popcorn flopped at the box office, but it's a far better film. I'm not saying I'm trying to say it's a perfect film, but I'm saying compared to Scream, Popcorn is a far, far better film. Well, to make that judgment, I'd have to see them both again close to each other, so I can't make that assessment. I haven't seen Popcorn in over 20 years. One thing, Jill Shillian, oh my gosh, what a crush I had on her. Watched every movie she was in because I had a mad crush on her. She's so adorable. I remember enjoying the film. It definitely, weirdly enough, you know what movie comes to my head? is not Scream, but remember Matinee with Joe Dante? Yes, I, I, feel, I, I quite like that. Yeah, I feel as if it does that concept better than Matinee did. Playing it straight, where Matinee is Goofy. literally satirizing yeah, the it, concept. Well, while Popcorn is a satire of the horror genre, it's played, I don't want to say humorlessly, because there's a lot of humor no, built into the satire, no, but it's played, but, but there is no nudge-nudge-wink-winks. It's no. played like a slasher movie. It is. It's more like an ode to something like House of Wax for instance. It's it's more like an ode to those old movies by actually playing it straight, as we said. It's got its tongue firmly and its cheek. It's a pretty cool film, um, and one I should revisit, honestly, because I really enjoyed it back in the day. And then we talked about Silence of the Lambs a little bit yeah. last week, but everyone's I, I talking still about say, that one. I'm not worried about that one. It's a good movie, but I prefer Manhunter. We did a whole retrospective on the Silent Night Deadly Nights, and I wasn't the biggest fan of Five, the Toy Maker, except for the the irony. In our Stephen King retrospective, never really got into Sometimes They Come Back. I like the original one. I like the original one. It's a fine TV movie. That's about all I'll give it. It's fine. It's it's a very well-made movie, well-acted. The people are good in it. If It's a good movie, like, say, if you wanted, if you got a kid that's interested in horror, but he's too young, or she, he or she, by the way, that's a good movie to show them as a, as a gateway horror film. Well, then let's move into the realm of sci-fi. I was never a big fan of the comics. I didn't really like the movie, but I can't deny that The Rocketeer is a quality film. I just personally don't like it. Well, it's written by my boys, who wrote Trancers. It's got that old-school feel to it, but I myself 
have always felt it was missing something. If anybody wants to put in the comments what they think it is, please do, because I've never been able to put my finger on it. I partially think that the lead, like, he's good-looking, he can act, but is am I wrong in thinking, like, there's something missing from him? Like, Alan Arkin's great. The lead was missing something, and I, I don't know what it is. Maybe he should have been more flawed. Maybe he should have been more like, you know, if you look at Jack Death, Jack Death is a cool character, first of all, because it's Tim Thomerson. But you get the feeling like Jack's kind of like a bit of a loser in a way. And so he's got something to overcome. You know, ever since his wife died, he has something to overcome this thing to become a better man. And with Rocketeer, I never felt like those stakes were there. So maybe it's me. I don't know. But I I know Red Letter Media talks about it a lot as their favorite movie. And it's like, I can't. Uh, It's good. But I've always felt like it missed, missed the mark somehow. Yeah, like I said, I, I can't say it's a poorly made movie. I just could never get into this. I couldn't get into it in the theater. I tried watching it again on TV years later. I just cannot get into this movie. It's weirdly flat. That's what I'm saying. It's got all the right pieces. I just don't know what it is. I, I can't discern. Maybe it, the problem is it isn't one thing. Maybe it's multiple things. I, but it's not a bad movie by any stretch. But then you have... Star Trek VI, The Apology, in 1991. Because <laughs> Star Trek VI, Undiscovered Country, first of all, is a great film. Yes. Okay? It, it, it's probably the best Star Trek movie since Wrath of Khan. But this film was 100% apologizing for Final Frontier. It was saying, we're sorry. I promise you we are still Star Trek. Yeah, it's 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 a weird movie too. Uh when the last time I watched it, I was really noticing how it almost seems like it's taking bits and pieces like a little bit from 2, a little bit from 3, a little bit from 4 and sort of what was it people loved about those movies? And it's got a little piece of all of those in it. So in a weird way it almost shouldn't work, but it really does. And it's such and, a step above 5. Oy. And it's a good send-off to the original cast. This is something that even the modern Star Trek movies are doing. They always tend to focus on Kirk and Spock. Kirk and Spock are the main characters. Everyone else is pushed to the background. And Six, I mean, Kirk and Spock are still in front. McCoy probably has the biggest part he's ever had in one of the movies as as a main character. Sulu has a major key role. Chekhov and Uhura and Scotty all get more than one moment to shine. This is the first of the movies that truly felt like an ensemble film. And I don't know if at the time we noticed it, but I noticed it looking back. Well, I'll only disagree because I think four is a real ensemble, too. They all, well, maybe not all. Most get, like, McCoy has his own thing in the hospital. You have the thing with Chekhov on the ship, you know, how he gets hurt and ends up in the On the nuclear vessels. On the nuclear vessels. They do each sort of have those moments. Scotty and Sulu do the thing with the transparent aluminum. So I I think four does, too. And maybe what happened is six developed that better. It was kind of nice seeing Worf's grandfather as Kirk and McCoy's defense attorney. Yeah, that was a nice nod. Uh, I know some people that don't like that or like that scene, and I'm always perplexed because I think it's really good. And can we also give a nod to Christopher Plummer? He looks like he's having a great time, and he's a really good addition to the villain pantheon. And then I'm going to skip over Critters 3, because we're doing a whole Critters retrospective in two months, so I don't even want to talk about Critters 3. But then we've got Giver, which I'm going to agree with Cecil and Peter on Giver. It's okay. Whereas Giver 2, far superior film, but we're not talking about that this year. Yeah, the... The Giver 2 thing is, like, not exactly the highest of hurdles to jump. But if you want to talk entertainment value, 2 is is more interesting. It's definitely closer to the source material, although people tend to say that, like, that's an absolute thing. Like, oh, it's closer to the source. 2 is also rated R and a hard R at that. Yeah, mostly for the gore. Again, it probably should be. 2, or uh, forgive me, part 1, it looks good, but it's so forgettable. There you go. Go see two. Should we even talk about Suburban Commando or just move on? I, I don't want to. I don't like the film. I, I know people love it. I have no vendetta, so I, I just say let's move on. Well, then there's Brain Twisters, a movie most of us have only seen from all of those $10 for 50 movie DVD sets. I don't know and, this movie. Uh, yeah, it's 
it's got about 10 minutes of interesting scenes in 90 minutes of runtime. <laughs> it's one of those. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. How about Eve of Destruction, where Gregory Hines is chasing a sexy fembot through the city? Yes. and Do you I remember was, Eve of Destruction? I saw that in the theater, dude. I saw this on HBO, so I can't speak to that part. I, 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 I won't say the exact words that were spoken, but when we were walking out of the theater, the response I'll never forget as long as I live was, man, that chick had some nice, you know what, because she does a lot of nudity. Well, first of all, Gregory Hines isn't who you really peg as, hey, action star. They they sure seem to be trying to. A little bit in that movie White Knights, but of course the biggest one I remember is Running Scared. Unusual choice, but then again that whole movie is kind of weird. So I, I don't know, I, I don't know, do you have any thoughts as to who could have made it better? Mario Van Peebles. I, I just keep thinking, I always as, as a kid confused Solo and Eve of Destruction together. Oh, oh I could see that. You know, because they're both about a cyborg man. They both have a strong black lead who's not giving the best performance. And, yeah, I always, you know, kind of throw those two together. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Remember, I think it's Don the Dragon Wilson in Future Kick from Roger Corman? No, I don't. Don the Dragon Wilson is somebody who's... I swear to you, like, I feel like I wish I could find a video store and just go rent all of his movies so I could finally see these films because I am so undereducated on his stuff. I've seen a couple, but not enough to qualify. The best way to describe Don the Dragon Wilson is the, the stunt work, the fighting is fine. The acting, you can see he's trying, but he's not the strongest. Sort of like, uh, what was it, uh, Jeff Speakman? I, I would say Don the Dragon Wilson is better than Speakman. Okay, well, that, that's not two. a hard leap. We got Godzilla versus Biolanti prior to this, but remember they were making all of these Japanese Godzilla films that were not coming to America at this point. We would get them later in the 90s on VHS, but yeah. Godzilla versus King Ghidorah was made this year. I honestly think this is the best of all of this wave of Godzilla films with the time travel and all this. I really liked this one. I'll go as far as to say that uh, I, I don't know if I could rate them all. This m- is without a doubt one of my favorite Godzilla movies of all time. It's the most entertaining. It's also it's energetic. Got the right... It's got a weird energy to it, doesn't it, it? It's got a weird energy. And also it's got the one of the things that I think most people agree on is Godzilla films have always had kind of a bad pacing issue. This is probably the closest I've ever seen to what I'd call near perfect pacing. Pacing. You get just enough Godzilla, just enough King Ghidra, just enough weirdness. It's just a well-balanced Godzilla movie. I want to talk about Highway to Hell. This is a movie that barely came out in 91. And I remember just, I caught this movie, I don't know, like years later on sci-fi or maybe I rented it. This movie is imaginative. It's got a beautiful look to it. An amazing cast, usually in cameos. I mean, I don't like Ben Stiller, but the whole Stiller family is in this movie. Yet this movie barely got a release. This movie just sort of leaked out, you know? Yeah, it escaped. There's no doubt about that. You've always heard about that, too, that it just sort of escaped. But clearly a lot of money was spent on this. This was not a cheap little, you know, direct-to-video flick, and yet no one wants to claim it, really. It's just like, oh, yeah, highway to hell. I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you on this one, and I wish I did. It's imaginative. It's worth seeing. I think that perhaps people's biggest issue is it's a film that tries to pose a moral quandary for the heroes, and yet it's a quandary that never occurs. It needs sort of like you've got the devil, you've got hell, got our two young protagonists, and it it never feels like we get those challenges you would expect of dealing with hell. And perhaps that's it. I really liked how hell was imagined like like a weird 50s interpretation of a Mad Max movie. Yeah. That's a super unique look for hell. It, it's it's a very unique movie, and again, it, it might be just there's a lot of imaginative set pieces, but I feel that the center it droops a bit as a story, and and maybe that's it. But it's still worth checking out. I think it's worth checking out. It also has absolutely no subtlety to it whatsoever. <laughs> Remember the the kind old man that keeps helping them is named Bezel, oh. and then when he turns out to actually be the devil, you're like subtle. Well, it's it's Patrick Bergen, so I mean... But, I mean, his name is Beazle. Yeah, 
Yeah, and the kid, the kids like doesn't catch that. It's like Beazle's tow truck, and it's like um Beazle bug devil. Yeah, it's like. But I I also thought that the Highway to Hell cop was always creepy as hell with the the wicked mirrored sunglasses and that kind of Hellraiser head he has. I think and he has literal literal handcuffs that are hands. <laughs> As I said, it's a fun, imaginative movie worth seeing. I seem to recall the director talking about that if there was going to be a sequel, he wanted it to revolve more around Hellcop. And I could totally see that, because you can completely see him kind of fitting into that pinhead Freddy Krueger mold. Well, now, I know you love Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I personally (laughs) love the first two. I haven't seen three or four in many years. Yeah. Killer Tomatoes Strike Back was this year. John Aston is back, and I remember this one being better than Eats France. Didn't see it. I'm sorry. I gave up. I, I tried to watch Eats France, and I, I, I love part one. Part two has lots of funny jokes, but that was it for me. Okay, well then what about the movie you like to talk about, Time Bomb? <laughs> That's not fair. He's only saying that because we just talked about that. Um, but still, Time Bomb. Very odd, oddly edited, oddly done movie, but I remember being kind of intrigued by it. It's a movie I want to revisit. Keep in mind that we, while we were talking about it, it was in that category of for all the wrong reasons. So, <laughs> What about Rudger Hauer in wedlock i i always confuse this with a, a similar movie called deadlock that had a similar presence that had a si- similar premise rudger hauer can you ever go wrong in a direct-to-video sci-fi movie with rudger hauer it's it's an okay film unfortunately it falls into that category where that middle is really slow and it just doesn't have all the things it should have to prop it up and and keep it entertaining but it's a, it's an okay movie rudger hauer is generally always entertaining just sometimes the movie movie around him isn't that one's all right i also want to talk about one last movie how many people out there have actually seen neon city where they someone decided and i I, this is not in a bad way michael ironside is our good guy action hero because usually he's not the good guy action hero in like a cyberpunk post-apocalyptic mad max movie but he is in neon city i think of neon city as Hobo stew. People don't know what hobo stew is. It's it's pretty much just a stew that hobos would make, and whatever somebody had on them, that's what would go into the pot. That's Neon City. It looks like a movie that a bunch of people got together and said, "Well, I have a bunch access to a bunch of Mad Max looking cars, and another. I have access to a cyberpunk set, and I have access to to Where's the Wasteland clothes, and and we can get Michael Ironside. Okay. Yeah, isn't Ray Dong Chong in that as well? Bizarre bizarre movie is just bizarre i do remember enjoying it though it's one of those ones that no one ever talks about though no no they don't at all and uh there are those movies that just perhaps it just suffers from that problem like by that time i think most of us were kind of burned out on apocalypse films that could be just it and it didn't get any exposure i don't even remember seeing a vhs copy of that until literally after vhs was nearly dead so well and then to wrap this up we usually talk about the razzies for the given year but since we did a retrospective on all of them we're going to skip those from from going forward here but we got to talk about the top 10 highest grossing films of the year so we have at number one terminator 2 judgment day no surprise there i for one saw it seven freaking times in the theater so doesn't surprise me that other people did too we got robin hood prince of thieves the giant mess of a movie that somehow was a hit (laughs) we have beauty and the beast Again, not a surprise at all. Not my kind of movie, but, you know, if you liked Stockholm Syndrome as a cartoon, (laughs) then that's for you. (laughs) Then we had Hook, which I talked about. Just never worked for me. Silence of the Lambs, again, big hit. JFK, which, considering how controversial it was, I'm surprised it made as much money as it did. Adam's Family, again, we talked about last week. Cape Fear, that one kind of surprised me. I guess De Niro and Scorsese as a combination. The one that really shocks me here is number nine. Hot Shots. It doesn't matter whether you like the movie or not. I'm shocked that made $181 million in 1991. That one was a little surprising. Eh, I didn't like it, as we discussed last week, but City Slickers. Oh, I like City Slickers. I really enjoy that film. I That one doesn't do anything for me, Oh, I find as it I discussed last surprising. week. But Given that I was there, I was 21 years old, I, I can't really say any of it shocks me. Um, again, maybe because... I was alive 
and I was experiencing it. I, like, for instance, Hot Shots, that, when that movie came out, it was huge. I was sort of surprised. I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't think it's as good as Airplane or Naked Gun. Not even close. Yeah, I, I, I know a lot of people, other people do. I'm not one of them. I think it's got several really funny jokes. Whether, like you said, whether we like it or not, it, it was huge and everybody was quoting it endlessly. No, I can't really say I'm shocked or surprised by any of it. Having, like I said, having been there. It was what everybody was talking about, and that's Cape Fear. I don't like Cape Fear, but everybody was talking about it. How would you summarize 1991, not just from the genre films, but the mainstream stuff as well, 1991 as a year in film? Because the way I look at it is, this is the first year of the 90s, because, you know, there's always that lag back. In, you know, 1990 was still the fallout of the 80s. This is where the 90s are starting. Do you think this was a year that, that codified that, yeah, the 90s are here now? I would say so because there was a film we didn't get to talk about, but a film I kind of like called Kafka came out. A visually weird movie that barely got seen. I mean, it barely played in theaters. Even on home video, it was hard to find. I don't even think it has a DVD or Blu-ray release, but I could be wrong. I haven't looked it up in a long time. But it's a neat little movie. It's offbeat. And I think in a weird sort of way, it's a signal to the Sundance era that's just around the corner now. It's an unusual era, but I see a lot of, now that we're talking about all this, I see a lot of bloat. Do you think that's an unfair statement? Well, I think you're going to see that in any year, but I, I do see it, yes. Well, I'm seeing a little more than ever. It just, it feels like, as you pointed out, a lot of twos, a lot of threes, and I guess another way of saying this is a lot of more of the same. What you're, what you're also seeing is, now this obviously isn't the birth of the direct-to-video market, but the no. direct-to-video market is really coming into its own, as well as VCR prices are coming down. More people have VCRs in their homes from 1991 to 1993 than had ever in the entirety of the 1980s. So I think this is the first time you're seeing the effect of the VCR and the home video market start to set its sights on mainstream Hollywood, on the theatrical release. It's only a mosquito bite at this point, but they're still starting to scratch, you know? Well, it, yeah, I would say it even started a little earlier than 91, because I can't remember if it was 91, 92, or maybe 93, but don't uh, the blockbuster boom, the bubble pop in one of those years. That's that's when Blockbuster Video, you know, overbuilt, and we can't underestimate the the impact that had on the video market because those stores started closing down like dominoes, you know, just boop 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 boop. But there was still a real strong foothold in the video market. So I, I would actually agree that I would say that yeah, it didn't start there, but they were they were starting to figure out how to utilize this market better. So I look back at 1991. I was a sophomore. In high school, I remember seeing a lot of these movies either first run in the theater, as soon as they came to HBO, or renting them right away. Mm -hmm. 1991 is a nostalgic year for me, and that's not always going to hold true when we get to some of the later years later. Yeah, it wasn't for me, honestly. I think this is my period because I was a little older than you. This is when I began a little bit more of my experimental looking for smaller, weirder films. I started getting into foreign films and things of that nature. So probably why this year isn't as important. But then again, I did rent literally every full moon movie that came out. We all did. Anyone who listens to this show that was alive then did. Oh, yeah, including that awful Shadow Zone. So on that note, where can people find The Fred if they wish to contact him? Nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. See, Fred doesn't actually exist. He's actually an AI construct. Mm -hmm. I think he's he's got some programming glitches, but I think he's coming along nicely. Yeah, I, 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 I hope so. You can find me at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Don't know shit.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.